If you have your Bibles this morning, would you open them up to Psalm 49? The 49th Psalm. As we've been progressing through the book of Psalms, we have found Psalms that have been more focused on theological truths about God. And we come across some that provide more practical truths in living for God. And Psalm 49 is a psalm that I would really characterize as being a practical psalm, a, a psalm of practical truth. Psalm 49, beginning with the first verse. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will disclose my dark sayings on the harp. Why should I fear in the days of evil when the iniquity at my hills surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches... None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly, and it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. For he sees the wise men die, likewise the fool and the senseless person perish, and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last forever, their dwelling places to all generations, and they call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of their posterity who approve their saying. Like sheep, they are laid in the grave. Death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. And their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Be not afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. Here we have this psalm from an unknown psalmist who opens up by saying, I need to share something with you. And he says, this is for all peoples, for the inhabitants of the world. I'm I'm going to disclose a revelation that we all need to grasp. This is a practical truth that we need to understand, a practical issue that we are all confronted with and every generation has been confronted with. He says, I'm going to give advice to you that has eternal implications. And then he begins to speak of the treasures that people seek, the treasures that people trust in, the treasures that people value. And so this morning, I want us to speak of treasure. I want us to look at the treasure mentioned in this psalm. I think we see three distinct forms of treasure this morning. The psalm opens and throughout the psalm alludes to a dangerous treasure. Something that is dangerous 
towards our souls, something we should be wary of. He speaks of dangerous treasure, and he refers to it as wealth and the multitude of riches. The possession of great wealth can be dangerous. Now, when I say that, I want to be very clear. I need to add my disclaimer to this, or you'll think I don't understand the scriptures. God is not opposed to a person being wealthy. God is not opposed to people having riches. In fact, if you study the scriptures, you will find those who are faithful followers of Christ, those who are committed to God, who are wealthy. You can go into the book of Acts and find examples. For example, you can read of Dorcas or the description of John Mark's mother's home and it becomes aware these people must have had some financial means. They were wealthy people. You can look at the early church and find that there were those in the church who possessed properties and things of value that they could sell and finance the ministries of the church. There was wealth among some of the people. You think about the description in the Gospels of the undergarment that Jesus wore. A seamless garment in those days was costly. It alludes to the fact that Jesus must have had some wealthy benefactor who supported his ministry. You can look at Joseph of Arimathea who came with Nicodemus to get the body of Christ and put in his own tomb. And the Bible clearly says he was a man of financial wealth. Nicodemus probably was as well. You can jump back to the Old Testament. You can read about the man, the Bible says, was the friend of God who had faith in God, Abraham, and he had great wealth. God is not opposed to wealth. God is not opposed to riches. But God does warn us about dangers related to wealth and riches. And this psalm is one of those such warnings. See, God is not opposed to any of us having material success and financial wealth, but he warns about dangers related to those things. For example, in 1 Timothy 6.10, the Bible says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from faith in their greediness and they have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. See, God's not opposed to wealth, but he does warn us that the pursuit of wealth can produce a greed that will lead us astray from the life God is calling us to live. The pursuit of wealth can cause us to take a different path than the one God is calling for us to take. The desire for riches, the Bible says, can pierce us through with many sorrows. When my desire is for material gain ahead of my desire for Christ, I have problems. And so the pursuit of these things can cause me to pursue desires contrary to the desires I should have as a follower of Christ. In fact, 2 Timothy chapter 3 reveals that a love for wealth is associated with many other ungodly characteristics. See, God's not opposed to wealth. He just warns us about the dangers associated. In Mark 10, Jesus says, 
how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. And then his disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So God warns against the dangers of desiring riches and then Jesus puts the pinpoint on the problem when people come to trust in their riches. When people's desire to gain, acquire, and maintain becomes their focus, their trust, their dependence. To trust in earthly riches, to trust in worldly wealth makes it difficult for me to yield myself to the Lordship of Christ because I'm serving a desire for my riches. That's the warning God gives. In fact, in Matthew 19, it's illustrated as Jesus encounters this rich young man and he desires eternal life and he comes to Jesus and asks, how, how do I have eternal life? And Jesus gives him the answer and it's going to involve setting his desire for riches aside so that he desires the riches Christ can give. And the Bible says he goes away sorrowful because his riches have such a hold on him he desires earthly riches more than the riches found in Christ. You see, the psalm here begins by speaking of the dangers of desiring, trusting in, living for wealth, riches. This morning we're going to talk about this, but I want you to understand, this morning when I talk about wealth, worldly wealth, earthly riches, it doesn't always mean financial wealth, although that is included. It could mean um, financial wealth, building a big bank account. It could mean a material wealth where you have all the fun toys and possessions. It could mean an intellectual wealth where you're trying to gain and acquire more and more and more of the wisdom of man. It could be a social wealth where you try to acquire a social prominence, a social power, a social standing. It could be a cultural wealth where you're woke and you have a great cultural relativism among this culture we're in. There's a lot of different riches we seek. It's not always dollars and cents. So when we talk about riches this morning and you say, well, look, just check my bank account. You're not preaching to me. Yeah, but what is the rich riches? What is the worldly riches that grip you? Is it social prominence? Is it being culturally relative? Is it just having stuff? Is it gaining more and more intellectual prowess? What's the riches that you seek? Because the reality is, any of the worldly riches, regardless of the form, are dangerous when we trust in them instead of God. That's what the psalmist is talking about. Riches become dangerous when we place our trust in those riches, whatever form they take. In fact, verse 13 says that is the way of the foolish, to trust in earthly riches. Those who would trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of riches is how he words it there in verse 6. It's foolishness to say I can acquire this great worldly standing and trust in it. That's dangerous. In fact, the psalm illustrates some very specific reasons it's dangerous. 
Trusting in worldly treasure, earthly riches, material wealth becomes dangerous because, number one, wealth cannot bring redemption. You see that in verse 7 and 8. In verse 7 and 8, the text is very clear. Regardless of a person's wealth, regardless of a person's riches, those riches cannot provide redemption to their soul, redemption for their soul. In fact, the cost of redeeming a soul is far beyond the riches or wealth any of us could amass. There are no earthly riches. There's not enough worldly wealth to pay the cost required to redeem even one soul. If we could get Forbes and go through and contact the 10 richest people in the world and acquire all their wealth and combine it, we would not come close to what it costs to redeem a soul. Redemption cannot be purchased with wealth. No one can buy their way into heaven. Eternal life is not granted because you have achieved a great standing financially or materially or socially. Eternal life doesn't come because you've achieved great prestige or power or possessions. You see, the folly that comes with great wealth is when I trust in my wealth for my security and don't understand that my redemption can't be provided according to my wealth. There's a second aspect of trusting in wealth that makes it dangerous. Wealth does not stop death. Doesn't matter how intellectually rich you are, you'll never figure out a way to cheat death. Doesn't matter how many possessions you own, they can't keep you from dying. Wealth cannot stave off death. Verse 10, verse 12, verse 14, verse 16, 17, 19. Time and again, the psalmist here says, it doesn't matter what you have, you're going to die. Verse 10, he says, you can be wise, you can be foolish, you can be senseless, you're going to die. Verse 12, man does not remain, he will perish. Verse 14, like sheep, the shepherd of death leads people to the grave. Verse 16 and 17, even the rich and glorious die. Verse 19, they shall go to the generations of their fathers. In other words, to the grave just like their ancestors have gone. Regardless of the wealth I possess, I cannot stop death from occurring. The reality is, those people with the most money, the most possessions, the most popularity, the most acceptance, they share the exact same fate as the most despised, the most rejected, the most poverty-stricken people in the world. We all die. We all die. Shouldn't surprise us, Hebrews 10 says, it's appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. We all face physical death and stand before God. Really doesn't matter what I've amassed on this side of the grave. It doesn't change that fact. It is foolish when I trust in my wealth because it doesn't change the final outcome. Here's a third reason trusting in wealth is dangerous. Wealth brings no eternal benefit. In fact, verse 10 says, a person dies and leaves all his wealth to others. 
I spend a lifetime amassing all this great stuff. I die and my family says, look at all the junk we have to deal with now because I leave it to someone else. I grow the biggest bank account that my mind can conceive. I die and someone else will spend it. Verse 17 says, when he dies, he carries nothing away. His glory shall not descend with him. You gotta leave it. You don't take it. And it doesn't matter in eternity what you accomplished with it. If I trust in earthly riches, I live for worldly wealth, I pursue that, and that's all my focus is, it has no eternal benefit to me at all. I just leave it. I just leave it. I can have the biggest fortune. I can have the most social prominence. I could be the most popular person on the globe. I can have the largest collection of cool things. But when I stand before God, it won't matter. There's one other thing listed here that makes trusting in our wealth dangerous. And that is this, wealth cannot provide a true legacy. Now this sounds counterintuitive because we've always been taught, especially in Western culture, leave a, leave a legacy, build a retirement, have health in, or, or life insurance, leave something for your family, have this property you pass on, there's a legacy for your family. Well, I get what you're saying there, but I'm talking about a spiritual legacy of eternal consequence. A legacy that has eternal value and wealth won't provide that. In fact, look at the description in the text. It says those who trust in wealth have their inner thought that their house will last forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Here are the people trusting in riches saying, my personal riches will last beyond me and ensure I have a legacy of honor. People will talk about me for generations because of the wealth I have acquired, the possessions I have, the prominence I have established. No, they won't. You'll be gone a month, they won't remember your name. That's just how it is. That's just how it is. Your name will be thrown up on a building and in a generation people won't remember what that name means or who it refers to. See, a legacy involves more than just worldly wealth. And worldly wealth really doesn't leave you a true legacy. Verse 18 says, men will praise you when you do well for yourself. What that means is this. While you're here, you're a big shot and people talk good about you, but when you're gone, they don't care anymore. This doesn't matter. So you can build a legacy that's esteemed by men, but that's not a legacy of any value. The reality is you need a legacy esteemed by God. That's a legacy of true value. And that legacy comes when we invest and search after, pursue, and desire divine riches, divine treasures, the divine wealth that we can have through Christ. See, the psalmist mentions here divine treasure. He mentions the danger of worldly treasures, but then he moves on to the divine treasure provided us, wealth found in Christ. You see, in Jesus, we have access to divine treasures. 
In Jesus, we have riches that will outweigh the wealth of the entire world from all generations. Divine treasures. Let's look at them. The first one, redemption of our souls. The most valuable treasure, the the most wonderful riches that we could ever imagine come because of the redemption of our souls. There is nothing more valuable than this. Verse 8 says, the cost to redeem a soul is costly, so costly, in fact, that God had to pay the highest price to redeem your soul. The redemption of your soul cost the greatest price imaginable. In fact, I don't think we can even comprehend it properly. Our finite understanding cannot wrap around the vastness of what really happened and the cost that was required. Now, we know according to Scripture what the cost was, but it's hard to really ascertain how profound, how deeply costly this was for God. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning of verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received from the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. See, the redemption of a soul is so costly, the price is so high, God had to find the payment. And the only payment that could be deemed suitable to redeem even one soul was the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's the price paid for your soul. Your redemption has been purchased. To redeem means to purchase. You have been purchased out of the slavery of sin. You have been purchased from the consequence of sin. Your forgiveness, your redemption, your freedom hasn't come through silver or through gold, through any earthly riches, through any other thing that man deems to be valuable but through the blood of God himself shed on the cross of Calvary. That is how valuable this treasure is. Throughout time, God did not deem the sacrifice of animals suitable to purchase salvation. He has not seen fit that our own righteous efforts could purchase our salvation, could achieve our redemption. Only the precious blood of Jesus could redeem humanity from the slavery of sin. See, the greatest treasure anyone could ever receive is to be redeemed out of sin, to be given eternal life. There's nothing more valuable. There's nothing more precious. And it's only available through the redemptive work of Jesus. You see, redemption gives to us our divine inheritance. We receive the wealth of heaven. It is a wealth incorruptible, undefiled, that won't fade away The psalmist here says, look, you can chase after worldly riches, but here's the reality. The most valuable thing anyone could ever possess has been purchased by Jesus on the cross of Calvary, and it's yours as a gift if you receive him through through, uh, faith, a repentant heart of faith. 
You can have this gift of eternal life. You can possess the most valuable riches there ever were. The redemption of your soul, he mentions here. There's a second divine treasure mentioned here. That is a heavenly home. Heavenly home. When I'm redeemed out of sin, I receive a heavenly home. Verse 15 testifies that God will redeem our soul from the power of the grave and receive us into his presence. To live in the presence of God. That is eternal life. Jesus expressed that. What is eternal life? To know God. When I come to have eternal life, I begin to live in God's presence here and now, and it carries on throughout eternity. And when I experience a physical death, I'm ushered into the presence of God. The problem is those who trust in earthly riches will die twice. They die a physical death, then they die a spiritual death, an eternal death of the soul separated from God's presence. But those who would trust in Jesus and the redemption he has purchased, sure, they experience a physical death, but physical death is simply the process through which they enter into God's eternal presence. A heavenly home. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8 says, So we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. What that teaches us is this. When my body stops, I enter directly into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not in limbo. I'm not in some holding state. I am in his presence. I enter into my heavenly home. That is a divine treasure no one can take away from me. Once God grants it, it's sealed by the Holy Spirit and no one can touch it. Regardless of what happens to me in this world, I have a heavenly home. Death is the process by which our faith in the unseen becomes reality. We immediately are ushered into the presence of our Lord. I think there's a third divine treasure mentioned here. A third form of heavenly riches. And that's bodily resurrection. We don't speak of that much except at funerals. But notice verse 14 has this phrase, the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. I really think that's a reference to a resurrection morning. The reality that those who through repentance and faith in Christ have received redemption, they've been given eternal life, they as a redeemed child of God have a promise of a bodily resurrection. That is, my body quits working, it dies. I enter right into the presence of Jesus. Someone puts my body in the ground or puts it in a little urn or whatever. Then one day... According to what Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica and at Corinth and Rome, Jesus returns and that body is resurrected and glorified and made perfect and my soul is reunited and I abide in a glorified, perfected, physical body residing in his kingdom forever. But not so for those who simply trust in their riches, only those who trust in Christ. It's a glorious promise, especially those of us who have loved ones who have died in Christ. Here's a fourth divine treasure. The psalmist really doesn't expressly mention it, but I'm going to expressly mention it for him. And that's heavenly rewards. Heavenly rewards. 
You see, divine treasure really is the redemption of my soul, the imparting of eternal life to me, a heavenly home, an inheritance with Jesus. It's being assured of entering into his presence. It's knowing that my body will be resurrected. It's all these things, but it's also understanding that I'm laying up treasures in heaven. That's what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter six, beginning with verse 19. He says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy but where, and where thieves can break in and steal, but lay up treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys or where thieves can break in, they cannot steal. So Jesus alludes to a heavenly treasure we can lay up for ourselves. Now, obviously, that's eternal life. That's a heavenly home, but it goes beyond that. Because the Bible teaches of a judgment of the saints. Not a judgment of salvation, but of our lives we've lived for Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it speaks of standing before his judgment seat, so he evaluates our service for him. It's called the Bema seat of Christ. It's where he looks at our service for him, he evaluates it, and then he rewards us accordingly. The child of God is rewarded based on the sincerity and the faithfulness of our service to Jesus and his kingdom. The scriptures even mention various crowns that are awarded that are then laid at the feet of Jesus in a form of worship. The Bible speaks of heavenly rewards that we are laying up, that we are earning. So you see, there are divine treasures we can seek, not just earthly treasures. But when we understand this, that God is not opposed to riches or wealth, he's just warning us about the dangers they can pose. And he gives us examples of divine treasure we should invest in. I think the key, this is the practical part of what the psalm teaches. I think the practicality is this. We need to look into diversified treasure. I'm no investment person. I don't own investments, I don't do all that, but from what I understand, the best thing to do is to have a diversified portfolio. Not all your eggs in one basket, but several baskets. Well, if I understand God's not opposed to my financial gain, and he wants me to seek divine riches, how do those work together? Well, I think the proper way to consider earthly wealth is in a diversified investment plan. Here's what I mean. We should use whatever earthly riches that we are blessed with to invest into the kingdom of Christ. I take the financial gain, the material gain, the possessions I have, whatever it might be, whatever worldly riches I have, and I use those to invest into Christ's kingdom. I use those to invest into his work. Our positions in the world, our worldly possessions, our material wealth are all forms of currency that we can invest into the advancement of the gospel. We can invest into the equipping of the saints. We can invest into the work of Christ. I take what God blesses me with here and invest it into his kingdom so it has eternal benefits there. If I take what I have, whatever it is, maybe I have meager possessions, maybe I have an abundance of possessions, 
But if I take what God has blessed me with, the gain I have in regard to earthly wealth, and I invest it into the kingdom of Christ, I'm now investing it in divine riches that will pay dividends for me eternally. See, the Bible very clearly admonishes us to have a good work ethic. It teaches about seeking material provision for your families. It speaks about having a plan for the future. It tells us that we must be faithful stewards of God's blessing. And when we do these things, we invest in the kingdom. See, that is the work we do, the savings we amass, the possessions we acquire, we utilize for the service of Christ. We become good stewards over our worldly wealth for the use of the glory and the honor of Jesus. Now, that goes beyond tithing, by the way. Your tithe is your obligation. If you don't, you should. If you do, you'll be blessed. I won't go into that today, but the Bible's pretty clear on it. This is going beyond that. This is saying, God, you've provided me this nice vehicle. How can I invest that in your kingdom? God, how can I take this home you've blessed my family with and invest it for the glory of Christ? How can I use my finances to invest in the advancement of the gospel? How can I use my time, my ability, my possessions? How can I use the entirety of what you've blessed me with here on earth to invest in your kingdom? And when you do, your earthly treasure serves to earn you heavenly treasures. That's a diversified investment plan. Now, I want you to understand, the kind of treasure that we seek and the way we go about using that treasure, it tells us a whole lot about the condition of our hearts. Because you see, when Jesus in Matthew said we shouldn't lay up treasures on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. He went on to say this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so you can do a pretty good self-check. What is the desire of my heart in regard to worldly wealth, earthly riches, and using them? Do I have a desire to gain and build and acquire and maintain? Do I have a desire to gain so I can invest in the kingdom? Is my desire primarily a desire to see Christ glorified and I'll use whatever I have to achieve? You see, it all is an indicator of the heart. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Those who seek to use their worldly blessings to be a blessing in Christ's kingdom reveal a genuine heart for Christ and his glory. Those who want more and strive to maintain and just keep, well, they reveal their heart as well. This morning, I wonder, what kind of treasure are you focused on gaining? And what does that say about your heart towards the Lord? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Would you just bow your heads? I'd like you to just ask yourself right now. Just be honest with yourself. What is the treasure I seek? 
Is it a big bank account? Is it a giant house? Is it a fancy car? Is it social prominence and popularity? Is it power? Is it prestige? Is it intellectual prowess? What, what riches are you chasing after? Is it something other than the riches of heaven whereby Jesus is glorified in your life? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Today is your opportunity to align your heart with God and say, God, instill in me a desire for heavenly treasures, the divine treasures, that which will make a difference in the kingdom of Christ and lay up for me eternal rewards. The kind of treasures that leave a spiritual legacy, that have a spiritual impact. Maybe today you just need to call out, God, help me to be faithful in using that which you have given me as an investment in your kingdom. Give me the wisdom to recognize how to do it. Maybe you're here and your dependence has been on what you can make out of yourself in this life, the career you can build, the family you can build, Maybe your trust has been in things that you can achieve and you can acquire. But I'm going to tell you this morning, the only, the only thing of lasting value, the only treasure that's eternal is the redemption of your soul and that only comes when you bow before the Lord Jesus, calling out to him, Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose again, and I'm calling out right now, Jesus, for your forgiveness, for your redemption, for your eternal life. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord. Anything other than that, you'll be let down and left separated from God. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. And when you do, if you need to come to the altar, you come. You don't delay. If you have questions about what it means or how you trust Jesus, come talk to me.